But a year later, he's, he's telling me, he goes up to a professor and he said, so uh, would you disciple me? And the professor turns and says to him, I wouldn't know where to begin. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, yours is the honor and the praise and the glory, the glory that's deservant, deserving of one who is eternal, who is everywhere present at the same time, who is almighty, infinite power, eternal existence, complete and infinite knowledge. You live in the infinite. Everything that you created has limits. Everything. The angels, the universe as we call it, um, people, certainly, time limits, limits in space, all kinds of limits. You have none. You are the one who deserves all the glory and all the worship and all the praise. We can do nothing apart from you. You are a God not only in all of those infinite attributes, but you are a God with complete and perfect compassion and love and grace, and mercy, and kindness, and perseverance, and patience. On and on it goes. Your character is to perfection. It always has been in infinity, and it always will be. You are the eternal God. I ask, Lord, that this message might give you proper honor and proper glory, not for the sake of criticism, but to be critical thinkers together so that we might seek to honor you in truth. And what that takes, I pray, that you would liberate us, free us to do what's right. We would not be bound by lusts and pride and all the energy of the flesh that just comes to nothing. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in the Spirit and by the grace of God live lives that would be honoring to you by, in the end, at the judgment here, well done, good and faithful servant, as we've walked in the Lord and been a channel for the Almighty God and a blessing to others, and primarily for you, and only for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is episode 67, The Great Deception. And I'll be using assorted scriptures. First of all, I want to ask some questions. And question number one, why is the church fractured into thousands of pieces? I mean, even within denominations, there's divisions. And from church to church, not every pastor preaches the same thing. And You know, there can be... You know, a certain consistency within denominations, but we all know it. 
There are so many differences. Number one, that's the question. Number two, why do people reduce the Word of God to the interpretation of men? So why is it fractured into a thousand pieces, and why do people reduce the Word of God to the interpretation of men? Number three, why does every church have a pastor who gets it right? When that pastor differs on many points from pastors all over the world, I mean, think about it. You know, there's little particulars, and then there's, you know, there's preaching of individual sermons, and different conclusions are made, and we all know it. At least Bible-believing Christians. So why do every church pastor? Why does every church have a pastor who gets it right um, when that pastor differs on many points from pastors all over the world? And lastly, and the one we're going to consider first, is why is God so hard to understand? I mean, if indeed he is God, he must be a good communicator. And if he's a good communicator, which he is, you know, why is there just so many divisions? Why is there so many things in which they differ? People differ. Just, just some questions I want to ask. And I want to begin with this one first. Uh, why does seem that God is hard to understand? He must be if so many people are differing. And maybe you can come to a different conclusion. I, I can't, and I'll tell you that why later. But by the time we get to Matthew 13, and uh, we're going to look at Matthew 13 first, Jesus has been preaching for some time. He has been, he has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's healed multitudes. He's called uh, the, the, the 12 disciples. He has acquired great multitudes of followers. His message has been crystal clear from the beginning. I mean, if you read Matthew 7, uh, 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, there's just nothing that you go scratch your head and say, like, what's he mean by that? I mean, they, they looked at him and they said, man, he preaches with authority. I mean, they got it right from the beginning. Beginning in uh, verse 1, however, of chapter 13, this is what we read. Uh, and this is somewhat into his ministry now. On that day, Jesus had gone out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. And so he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying. Then, in verse 10, after those parables are recorded in Matthew, we read that, uh, quote, And the disciples came up and said to him, It's almost like this is the first time this has happened. Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, Okay, Here's the answer. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And, 
In their case, the prophet Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, quote, by Jesus, his word, you shall keep on listening, but shall not understand. And you shall keep on looking, but shall not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Return is that idea of repenting. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now let's forget what we've been told. Let's forget what we've heard. Let's look at this passage as clearly as we possibly can. He's, uh, he preaches these parables. A parable is uh, it's allegory in the Bible. It's, uh, it's allegorical here. And every single one of these parables is, is then told by Jesus, explained by Jesus. And on that premise, I'm making this statement, you cannot find any allegories in the Bible. Oh, people will make them. And an allegory, you know, is a story hidden in a story. But in the Bible, it's all straightforward. It's either history or poetry, however it is. I'm going to make this statement, and many men have made it for hundreds of years now. It is what it says it is. And the way that I, I know that's true is because the gospel was hidden for 900 years. And then in, uh, in the 500s and 1500s, uh, men started to get together and they said to themselves, you know what, what we need to do is we need to understand the Bible like we understand everything else. It's just, it's written down to be understood. So let's take the words apart, look at the Greek, look at the construction, look at the syntax, look at how everything fits together in subject and object and, and, and verb and all these pieces. Let's tear down the words to understand it and boom, you had a different gospel that had been being preached. You had salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. You had justification by faith. You had identification you had a variety of all different doctrines that were all pointing to not only Christ, but the grace of God in salvation in such a way that it gave God all the praise and all the glory for, for salvation. No works attached to it at all going into the gospel. Coming out of the gospel, you had sanctification, you had transformation of life, you had life from the dead, you had being born again and regeneration. All of that changed. In one, in one, in decades, in a few decades. So what I want us to understand is that what is plainly taught, written, a clearly written, which obviously it is because God inspired it. Forget about the part where, you know, men are writing it down. It, it, yes, they had freedom, and God made them who they were, and God inspired the every word. That it's all God's. We don't say it's John's word or. It's Luke's word. We say it's the word of God, and it is the word of God. It's a miracle. Every, everything is, that God does is miraculous. Creation, salvation, 
It's all miracles. What, what's so hard about that? Just leave that alone. So it's God's word, and it has to be clearly understood. You can't understand an allegory. You know, I, I love Groundhog Day. It's, it's got stuff in it that's bad, you know. But there's almost like a conversion that takes place in the part of Bill Murray. And he goes from this jerk to this really lovable, nice guy. And, you know, you can read into that, the gospel. So I went back and I looked at Groundhog Day and I found out it was nothing what I could make it out to be. The author had no intention of doing anything like that. And that's just the way it would be in the Word of God. You make you put allegories in there, you make this mean that and that mean this. And, you know, metaphor, sure. Is the church a building? Absolutely. Is it made out of brick and mortar? Absolutely not. We understand metaphors. We get pictures. Pictures make it clearer. They don't make it obscure. Allegories obscure it so you don't even know what God... And then you can just put in there whatever you want, and you can make it say what you want it to say. And man just loves doing that. Why? Because then he makes God in his own image. That's what we always do. We cut down trees. You know, we carve them into whatever we want. We make God into whatever we want it to be instead of... What God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We're made in his image. He can't be made in ours. So you can't make the word that way. That's just what sinful people do. Church should never be involved in such things. And so we understand now what the, the Reformation was doing and what inspiration is. So there is just this one other element needed to understand God's word, and it is this one. Let's take this seriously. It's humility. Humility. You know, one of my favorite authors that just wakes me up when it comes to the subject of, of revival, and that's something that's so understood in our day, um, is, is the person Roy Hessian. Roy Hessian was uh, part of East African revival in the middle of the 20th, 20th century. I wasn't there. I can't tell you. I can, I've read his uh, autobiography, which is my Calvary Road, and he spoke about those days. Just to give you an illustration, you know, he said there was uh, um, two missionaries walking to each other, towards each other, and uh, they had been taking part in, uh, in that revival. And uh, one kind of looked down in the mouth. The other said, hello, and then he said, is there something wrong? And they just keep walking as they're passing each other. And he said, yeah, I, I sinned this morning. And uh, the, the, the other missionary, just as he's fading away, said, oh, has the blood lost its power? Let me tell you, there's something that's really s essential to revival, and that's the blood of Christ. The blood that can make a filthy sinner as white as snow, who can cleanse away the worst of sins and, and make, them, make that person guiltless in his own mind even because that's the power of the blood. Revival revolves around the sufferings of Christ. The blood isn't about the chemicals that are in a human body. You know, people just go astray even on that. Um, revival, the, the cross is about how Jesus suffered as the Son of God in an eternal relationship with the Father, who this is perfect life, perfect love 
in an eternal existence that we can't comprehend. And in that existence, the Father loved the Son infinitely perfectly. And the Son loved the Father perfectly and infinitely. And then the Son has to become, in salvation's plan, the, the sin bearer where God hates sin. He hates the results of sin. He, he brings about consequences from sin as an eternal punishment. And Christ has to pay that price. He has to take that place. I mean, we can't comprehend what that would be. But just think of infinite love being infinitely rejected and infinitely hated in an eternal existence. And then you know what Christ suffered on the cross. How could that be? I don't know. What difference does it make? God is that. When, when you think about God, always think about what you can't comprehend. And don't then complain about it. Understand you must be thinking about God. If you could comprehend it, it wouldn't be God. That's the way. Now, oh, that's blind faith. No, it's reasonable faith. It's faith in a God. I mean, how do you create something from nothing? So then where did everything come from? I don't want to go into all of that, but I I just want us to understand that we're talking about God now. But I want to read from the Calvary Road where Roy is declaring humility uh, from out of revival. So we want to be very simple in this matter of revival. Quote, revival is just the life of the Lord Jesus poured into human hearts. Jesus is always victorious. In heaven, they are praising him all the time for his victory. Whatever may be our experience of failure and barrenness, he is never defeated. His power is boundless, and we on our part have only to get into right relationship with him, and we shall see his power being demonstrated in our hearts and lives and service And his victorious life will fill us and overflow through us to others. And that is revival in its essence. If, however, we are to come into this right relationship with him, the first thing we must learn is that our wills must be broken to his will. To be broken is the beginning of revival. It is painful, it is humiliating, but it is the only way. It is being, quote, not I, but Christ. You know, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's where he's quoting, and he puts it in quotes, this, it is being not I, but Christ. And a sea, he says, is a bent I, that's broken, bent in lowliness of spirit. Now we're getting into humility. The Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. This simply means that the hard, unyielding self, which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands up for its rights, and seeks its own glory. At last bows its head, to God's will, admits it's wrong, gives up its own way to Jesus, 
surrenders its rights and discards its own glory, that the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words, it is dying to self and self-attitudes. As we look honestly at our Christian lives, we can see how much of this self there is in each of us. It is so often self who tries to live the Christian life, the mere fact that we use the word try indicates that it is self who has the responsibility. It is self, too, who is often doing Christian work. It is always self who gets irritable and envious and resentful and critical and worried. It is self who is hard and unyielding in its attitudes to others. It is self who is shy and self-conscious and reserved. No wonder we need breaking. As long as self is in control, God can do little with us. For the fruit of the Spirit, enumerated in Galatians 5, with which God longs to fill us, is the complete antithesis of the hard, unbroken spirit within us and presupposes that self has been crucified. He's talking about a a crucifixion that takes place naturally (coughs) and consistently as we live out our Christian lives. You know, if you want to know why Jesus hates hypocrisy so much, and if you read Matthew 23, you see he really does hate hypocrisy. Um, you know, this is, this is the antithesis to, uh, to hypocrisy. You know, this is living honestly, authentically. It's not going to church on a Sunday morning and pretending to be happy when you just got in an argument with your spouse. This is, uh, this is the opposite of that. This is dealing with this unbroken spirit, this uh, proud, rebellious, everything has to go my way spirit, to know actually everything needs to go God's way. And that's the way it'll be in heaven for eternity. Everything will go God's way because his people will live this out to perfection. And now we need to have a mind for this, to be honest. We really do. You know, in my own testimony, uh, I've struggled with so many things, particularly in the early days, and wanting to be in ministry and things are, can be very hard in church. And, you know, I was at a funeral with a heavy heart, having as many men in ministry have experienced, you know, hard ministries. Or, and, and they are hard because men's hearts are, can be hard. All of our hearts can be hard. And for a variety of reasons, numerous reasons, you know, I was, I was struggling. You know, but then, uh, I, and I was really, I was already into Roy Hessian. I was into this whole idea of being broken. And I was broken and broken and broken because I, I knew what it was all about. I didn't question why is this happening. And then as if, you know, there was a time when I did. But, but then there was a time when I didn't. And I understood that. This was about me being conformed to the image of Christ. Hard times are for that reason. You know, Christ, God, the Father, disciplines his children. And without children, you know, you're not a son. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. So uh, I'm there, and I hear God speaking, you know, through the word of God. But, you know, it's like in my ear, 
you know, if, if, if you never or ever serve me again in ministry, am I enough for you? I mean, that's, it just, I can't tell you, it just, it resounded as true, and it came into my mind, you know, and I, and I, and I know with the whole, uh, you know, can't be charismatic and God doesn't speak to people today, I'm not making a prophecy here. I'm not talking about like this is scripture. What I'm saying is the thought crossed my mind, which certainly didn't come from an unbroken me, and it certainly didn't come from the devil. You know what it is? It it it, it was the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart on something that I needed to be broken. I needed to be humble. I needed to look at the cross and see what Jesus did in my place and then get off my high horse and, and, and take life as it comes. And it came in those words. If you never serve me again in ministry, am I enough for you? You're going to be ticked off all your life or are you going to be satisfied and filled with joy and contentment and peace because you know me? I mean, I can put this a gazillion different ways, right? It's all going to amount to the same thing. So if it's a verse from the Bible, it's just that's what went through my mind. Now let's ask ourselves again this question. Why is the church fractured into thousands of pieces? You know, thinking in human terms, who is it in any church <clears throat> that sets the stage for division? I want to ask, answer that question by saying, Every church has a pastor or pastors who teach. I mean, I think everybody's got to agree with that, that every church has teaching pastors. Members can become comfortable with, you know, what's taught, you know, and even at times, you know, they can get really rowdy and defend their teaching very vigorously. We know that. But where does it come from? You know, when somebody stands behind a pulpit and he starts to exhort and to exercise the Bible, preach the Bible and the words from the Bible and say, this is what this means, <clears throat> and then members take it and run with it. I mean, where's it coming from? Well, wait, so let's stop for a minute before all the blame goes on the pastor. Uh, where does the teaching originate? You know, first, in some point in history, Every denomination has a denomination. Now, we're not looking at Christianity in that broad sense. Now, we're looking at, you know, Episcopals and Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals and Charismatics and just go through this long list and all the different kinds of Baptists and different kinds of Pente Presbyterians. Just go down there. Each denomination, however, will claim the Bible and they'll take it all the way back to the apostles, and we get that. But there's a date in which that particular denomination begins. And it's not Pentecost. It's, uh, it's going to originate after the Reformation. That's when it all started. It's after 1,500 years after Pentecost. Second, the teaching originates in seminaries, which are taught by professors disciple of mine who called me one year in seminary and uh, he calls me up 
And, I, you know, in our church, he had come alongside. We didn't know each other. And he came over the house to have lunch, as a lot did on, on Sundays. And he's sitting on my couch. He looks at me and he said, would you di- disciple me? Sure, I would love to disciple you. And we were off, and, you know, a number of years later, he went off to seminary. Of course, not after first getting a sit-down talk from me about what to be weary of, leery of, careful, danger, danger. But a year later, he's, he's telling me, he goes up to a professor, and he said, so uh, would you disciple me? And the professor turns and says to him, I wouldn't know where to begin. I wouldn't know where to begin. Okay, that's, we talk about things incomprehensible. That's incomprehensible to me. I, I can give reasons and all, but I, it just feels incomprehensible. So then three years later, you know, he, he's, he calls me up and we're talking about something and he says, you know, I hate to even say this, but I'm beginning to hate seminary students. Now, I have nothing against seminary students. And this personal friend, disciple, I love this brother in the Lord, and he's a great brother. I love the brother. Um, you know, he, he was understanding something, and that is when men are so focused on learning things, intellectual learning, it's like putting a cork in a bottle in a hose or a pipe. It just clogs things up. And uh, it's really the pride that does that and the confusion and the hardness of heart because it's not a living anymore. It's not practical when you're trying to just stuff all these intellectual thoughts and $10 words and these ideas in your head without practical use. The Bible's not meant to do that. The, mem- the, the Bible's meant to be like a pail of water with holes in it. And you fill up the, ho- the pail and you walk and you walk until it's empty and then you fill it up again and you walk and you walk till it's empty and you ask yourself, you know, what, what is this accomplishing? The inside of the pail is getting much cleaner. You know what I'm saying? You know, that's the way it's meant to work. It's not meant to be filled up and stuffed up and clogged up because, you know, the Dead Sea is its just all these minerals run into it and nothing can live in it. It's just it's the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it. They all It's just dead. It's the kind of water you get your head under, you got to go to the hospital, it will kill you. But it's just filled with minerals, and it's rich, and you just, it's, but it's deadly. That, you know, the Word of God is, is not deadly, it's alive and powerful. We, we create the deadness through our f- flesh and through our pride from knowledge. Why do people reduce the Word of God to the interpretation of men? It's the next question. Answer, Matthew 23, 1-11. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, whatever they tell you, do and comply with it all. But do not do as they do, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as their finger. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by people, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they do all, they, they love the place of honor in banquets and the seats of honor in the synagogues and personal greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi or teacher by the people. 
But as for you, do not be called rabbi. That's doctor or expert. For only one is your teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone on, on earth your father, for only one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders or professors or one who leads someone down a path, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Right back to Roy Hessian's The Calvary Road. Why? Because Jesus is talking about humility, and he's saying being in a place of position of authority, which is maybe full of knowledge, but at the same time, if it's full of pride, which they certainly were, and they were the leader, religious leaders of the day, he just said, be not like them. Because they say and they don't do. It's all about the head. It's not about the heart. I'm not criticizing any particular person in this message. I'm not saying anything bad about anybody. If you're listening to this and you're a pastor... Just uh, consider these things and just look at yourself and, and ask God to show you yourself for what you are. We all have to do that, pastors included, assistant pastors included, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, all members. You know, the, the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross, you know, it wasn't actually shed anymore. There was no more suffering in any pastor as, a, as over a member. You know, the blood that was shed for the pastor or elders or deacons, people who are, should be maturing in their Christian walk so that they can help others do the same thing and become the same way, and that's really the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, I know different gifts. I get that. You know, but the, the gifts are just categories anyway. And it's, it's so complicit, so complex the way we are as people, to just throw, and this is the pastor, and that's it, and one in a church of a thousand, you know, that's really kind of ridiculous. That's kind of another sermon. You know, but as we're looking through this right now, we're looking at the fact that Jesus suffered the same for everybody. And because he suffered in order to rescue us from an eternity in hell, we all have the same responsibility. So you look at a pastor, you know, let us... Have a king so he can go out and fight our wars for us. Yeah, no. It doesn't work that way. It's never meant to work that way in the church. And the setup is a setup for defeat. And it's set up by the devil. Because it's not in Acts. You know, when the first revival took place, that was Pentecost. You know, 3,000 people saved at a single message. 5,000 people saved at a single message. I mean, how many churches you do that today? And then they turn out to be really saved. Like they face persecution and death. They go out and they preach the word with boldness. I mean, these people were energized. This is revival. This is the real thing. And that was Pentecost. And it only happened one time. It didn't only happen. What are you talking about? The Great Awakening and Welsh revivals. You know, what's been going on in China for a long time. You know, all of these things that go on in history. It's God pouring out His Spirit and doing special works. <clears throat> I'm not talking about tongues. and I'm not talking about craziness. I'm talking about real heartfelt, broken, the blood of Christ, everything, the suffering of Christ that makes me cry. I'm talking about that kind of humbling 
that brings us to a place of obedience, boldness, and, you know, overcoming him by the word of their testimony, and they love not their life to death. How do you do that apart from being broken? How do you do that apart from the Holy Spirit energizing us with the new life of Christ? That's revival. That's how he started the book. So why does every church have a pastor who gets it right? When that pastor differs on many different points from pastors all over the world? I'm going to put it this way. You don't know what you don't know. I'm also going to say, it's not what you know that will hurt you most. It's what you know that ain't so. And in every case, this is, the, this is the problem. In every teaching, there's one person, one person that gets it right, and all the rest are wrong. Now, if you don't buy into that, you don't understand the nature of truth. Why do I say that? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, something's been going on for about 60 years now that uh, contradicts that. How How can that happen? Well, the Old Testament makes such a fuss over the over false prophets and God does and not only that prophets of God rail on false prophets I mean <laughs> uh, Elijah takes what 450 men and he slays them because the fire of, the, of, of heaven comes down consumes you know everything that's his and all theirs is just left you know let's whoever's God receives the sacrifice, and God did it, with fire out of heaven, and the rest were slain. But meanwhile, in our day, everybody has the same God. I talk to people all the time. And what they try to do is they want to convince me that, you know, if you're Muslim, or if you're Christian, or if you're Jewish, you know, there's only one God. And so everybody's worshiping the same God. So... Okay, so that means that people either make God out to be a liar or a nut without even thinking about it. Because the Bible is really clear, new and old. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. So what's he talking about? If there's no such thing as a false prophet, then no matter what they say, it's the same God. So what I want to do is I want to look at where this thinking has come from. And it actually came in the middle of the 60s when that wonderful time of rebellion took place when men were turning their parents over in their, in their graves and their, you know, when we had this um, difference between you know, fathers and sons and daughters and mothers when they threw morality out. And that generation that were generation of sinners like all others, but they understood the sanctity of marriage. They understood the sanctity of life, and that's how they lived their lives. But in the 60s, it was a time of rebellion, and Satan was given a a clear reign, obviously. Um, There was uh, the ecumenical movement, which actually started, and in that movement, there was uh, a desire for all Christian religions to become one. Really, they wanted headed towards all religions being one, but 
you know, they, they wanted this unity. And um, you know, they, at the center of this for good was a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was born in a, in a, in a, at a time when uh, there was hardship and poverty. But you know what? He was born five years before the Great Welsh Revival. He was born in 1899. And then he lived through uh, another revival. On the, he didn't live on Isle of Lewis, but I'm sure he was, he was close to it and aware of what was going on. It went between 1939 and 1942. You can listen to that Isle of Lewis on YouTube. He was a man who understood revivals, which means he believed in the moving of the Holy Spirit, not theoretically, but in experience. He preached about it constantly if you listen to his messages. And then page 392 and 393 from Ian Murray's book on the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I want to read a little bit of this to you. What is a Christian was the, the big question. And what it says further on this page it was that the gospel was being endangered <clears throat> by the failure of evangelicals in the mainline denominations to face the question, what is a Christian, as the primary issue. Instead, they were entering into cooperation with teachers who denied biblical truths. The Martin Lloyd-Jones issue should not be confused with a different question, namely, what should evangelicals do in a denomination where error cannot be disciplined? That question had long been a matter of discussion, disagreement between evangelicals, and yet, and yet hitherto it had not prevented recognition of their wider unity. But that wider unity included the shared conviction that opposition, not collaboration, had to be the response to false teachers. Now, however, a different principle was operating, popularized by the ecumenical movement, namely that all who profess to be Christians should be regarded as being so, irrespective of what they believe or deny. You get that? You're a Christian because you say you are, and it doesn't matter what you believe. This principle, he goes on to say, as noted earlier, was long held by liberals, and it underlay the ecumenical slogan that fellowship, not belief, unites. But it was new among evangelicals. So it's fellowship that unites, according to them, and not what you believe. So Christianity is reduced to a feeling. It's reduced to a relationship with other people at the expense of God, what God has spoken. So what's the problem here? The problem is how we get to unity. And I'm going to say that Jesus' way of getting to unity is in the truth. I mean, all you have to do is read Psalm 119. You know how he regards his word. You know how he regards truth. You know how he regards the word of God in all principles and precepts and commands. All of that is the way to unity. And unity is like the beard of 
Aaron, when they put the oil on his head and it drips down and it goes all over his clothes and it goes all the way down to his feet. And, you know, it's just covering everything. That, that picture of the Holy Spirit that just covers everything. You know, the Holy Spirit's not confused about what the Word of God means. You know, the Holy Spirit is necessary to understand the Word of God. Now, number one, the Word has to be taken literally. But number two, there has to be humility. And in all of these arguments to take place among all these denominations, particularly I'm talking in Protestant denominations, and I'm not giving a free ride for everybody else, and, uh, you know, cults and isms and all of those entities, or, you know, they don't deny Jesus Christ straight up. I mean, it really, should be clear to anyone who's born again, regenerate, has the Holy Spirit, you know, what's typically really wrong you know, with certain people who call themselves Christians, but then deny Jesus Christ as being God and things like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about within the realm of those who believe the gospel. Jesus, in his prayer, on his way to Gethsemane, on his way to falling down and sweating great drops of blood to the ground, Three times he comes back to the disciples. Could you not wait with me one hour? Could you not wait with me one hour? Could you not wait with me one hour? After three hours of bleeding in sweat because he's facing the cross. He's facing being hated by the Father that he loves infinitely. As he faces that and crucifixion and scourging which is only the physical part, the spiritual part goes into infinity. He's facing all of that horror, and he's on his way walking to that place, and he stops and he prays. And while he's praying, he says this, The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. Now, if you're not feeling guilty yet, let me read it again. <clears throat> Quote, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one. Now, this isn't talking about, he's not talking about a local church. He's, he's looking at the disciples who he's praying with, knowing that from their testimony and the preaching of the word and all through Pentecost and the years until they all lost their lives in persecution, that it's going to result in the church for decades, for centuries, and for millennia. And all of those people that would be born again, all those who are ordained to eternal life and believed, all of those saints of God, he's saying, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them. The glory of his holiness. He's separate from his creation. No sin, not even as a man. And while he's being tempted where God cannot be tempted, and he's, he's going shoulder to shoulder with sin sinful people for 33-some years. Not a sin, not an attitude, not, an a not a, 
motive, not a thought, not an action, nothing, no sin whatsoever. Hates sin. And he's going to be sin before, Almighty, before the Father, before Almighty God, as man and as God. And, the, and he's saying, the glory which you have given me, that glory I also have given to them. For what purpose? So that they may be one. Not just in your local church, but all over the world. Just as we are one. There's no, nothing but harmony to perfection between them. People want to make you know, differences between, well, here's the primary things that we need to be one about and all the other stuff we can let go. Yeah, and that's not what he said here. He said just as we are one. Well, we can't get that all together. Well, as long as we live in the flesh, you're right. We can't get it all together. But we're not called to live in the flesh. I mean, have you read Romans chapter 6 and 7 lately? We're not, there's, we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If we live according to the flesh, we're going to die. But if we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. You've read Romans 8 one, you know, read lately? That's how we're meant to live. Well, you can't do it. Well, then what's being a Christian? Is God alive? Is he risen from the dead? Well, you know, you're setting yourself up. I'm not setting myself up. I mean, I, I have rebelled terribly. The only, the only problem is I can't seem to get clear of it, and no one can, because of the church. Number one, spiritual warfare. The devil who set everything in motion to make the church what it's not supposed to be, from seminaries on down, from the division between leaders and members to the division between leaders and leaders, not only in local churches, but making denominations and all the rest. It's, hard, it's a hard thing to get through. But it's meant to be gotten through. Why? Because this is what he's praying. Jesus prayed this prayer. Jesus prayed this prayer, and then he bled, and he died. And, and he was raised from the dead to make sure this can happen. We either believe this or we don't believe in God. Uh, maybe I'm being a little... Uh, uh, maybe I'm setting the bar a, little bar a little high, but I'm not setting the bar. Jesus set the bar. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them so that they may be one, just as we are. I in them. The I in them. That's Jesus in us. And you in me, the Father in the Son, that they may be perfected in unity. Perfected. Completed in unity. They're made complete in unity. I just, I need to know where the unity is today. So that the world may know. The world can't know that you sent me unless we're one. They don't know what to look at today. They're looking in a thousand different places and all they're seeing is hypocrisy. Now God saves people anyway. But just as I saw, told a, a brother earlier this night, you know, as a dean spoke to me in school, Bible Institute, not a university, and he was a retired missionary. And he said, you know, there's two ways to live your life, Joe. One is that God works in spite of you. And the other way is because of your obedience. Which way you want to do it? Which way you want to live? I'm telling you tonight <clears throat> from the Calvary Road, from revival, from the Word of God, the way to do it is to be broken and humble. Not like 1 Corinthians 8.1 that says, you know, things can sacrifice. We all know 
about that knowledge. All, we all have knowledge concerning things sacrificed to idols. Uh, knowledge inflates. It puffs up. It makes you dumb in the head. Knowledge for knowledge's sake. Knowledge for pride's sake. Knowledge for authority's sake. It destroys. It kills. Brokenness humbles. And it gives freedom. That's why he prayed in 17, 25, and 26 this way. Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. That's the disciples that are going to become apostles and send off the word into all who would believe. And I have made your name known to them. I have made known who you are. Because in the name, you know whether it's Jehovah Nisi, the Lord thy banner. You know that banner over me is love. You know that, that, that character of God that is a vision and a focus that gives us insight and direction into who God is and who he wants us to be by his sacrifice. That there is who is being made known. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. You know what love is? It's not divisive. It doesn't divide. It brings together. Love unites. If we would love one another, we would come together and we would fulfill the will of God that would say to the world that Jesus was sent from God. The church is in a bad place. It's demonic. I think, you know, all true believers have a change of heart. I can't condemn that. God has, is doing a work in believers. That doesn't mean that believers can't get off track and the church can't get off track. The church has gotten off track. We need to start humbling ourselves and doing things that lead to relationship building instead of relationship breaking. And that begins with all being on the same page. It's impossible. Not if you let go of the things that aren't true. If you let go of the things that are not true and we're all in the truth, we have to be all on the same page because God is not divided. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your word. I give you praise and the honor and the glory for the grace that one day will complete us all in perfect harmony. The thing I'm concerned about now, and I should be, and every person listening to this, Lord, just open the eyes and the ears and the heart and not to be like Isaiah prophesied, that we wouldn't need parables or we wouldn't get parables, but we would hear the truth. You know, what, we, what we're concerned about in our hearts right now is the judgment seat of Christ. And that judgment seat 
It's going to be building with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. We know, Lord, building up to that point. The Apostle Paul was building up to that point, talking about division in the church. Relationship brokenness and the broken relationships, division, was just on every chapter of 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. And in the chapter 3, Lord, we know that you're asking for gold, silver, and precious stone building on the foundation of Christ and not the wood and the hay and the stubble. It's going to burn up. It's not going to go through the fire and then we're going to be left with, with nothing. We're going to get in. Some people are going to get left with very little. And we're all going to see some burning. Well, some will be 100. It won't be me. We know, Lord, I don't know, if if we evaluate ourselves in that day and we judge ourselves, we won't be evaluated by God. And and, and that's in degrees. So I ask, Lord, for all my listeners to hear this thing and begin to evaluate and to want to be on the same page as everybody else. And, Lord, if they just get on the the truth, if, if revival could come into our hearts and we just can't, if enough people were to do that, and I'm praying for that, Lord, we're praying for that right now, if enough, enough people would just walk in the truth concerning all the doctrines, all the teachings of the Bible, anything that matters that's going to be something we practice, then there'll be a union, a unity in the, in, among believers that would be marvelous, great. And Lord, today's, I don't know how much time we have. I don't know before, you know, you come back. And I know everybody has their own beliefs on what's going to happen, but Lord, Persecution may come, and if persecution comes and it's harsh, it's not going to matter. The only thing that matters is if we're going to give our life for you. Let us start giving our life to you by being broken in spirit and willing to give up the things in our flesh that we're holding on to that don't even belong to you and shouldn't belong to us. Lord, I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.